Accelerating to a better future, an insight into innovation at Imperial. Hello and welcome to this edition of Accelerating to a Better Future with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Richard Templer. Richard, hi, how are you? Uh, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm good, actually. I'm really looking forward uh, to today's discussion because we're sort of, this will be the last in this little uh, series, and I'm really looking forward to talking to John, who you're about to introduce, who's, um, who's been in this field much longer than I have. And... Um, I hope we're going to kind of just have a little bit of a reflection maybe on on the exciting things that are happening at the moment and where things are going. I think both of us, we, since we've just been chatting before this, uh, you know, both of us are sl slightly taken aback because we're used to, to having people throwing us out the front door uh, for our views. And we're now having people opening the front door for us. It's quite nice not to have to go in through the servants' quarters. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think it's it's... Probably, kind of, it's a, you're right, it's the culmination of the series and it seems so appropriate because what's characterised the series so far, I think, is that the, the sorts of people we've talked to, whether they're scientists or entrepreneurs who've seen an idea and made it, turned it into a viable business, is that they all accept that business as usual, traditional business, is not the solution. And we've got to change. And I guess we've got to do business as unusual instead. And, and that's something that, that John is just a past master at seeing and making happen. Described as, a, as the guru of the green business movement, but also the founder of global sustainability in, as we know it. And of course, the coiner of the great phrase, people, planet, profit. John, it's a massive pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Amanda and Richard, thank you uh, both. I mean, I'm very much looking forward to the uh, conversation. I'm not a founder really of anything. I sort of just happen to sort of jump on my surfboard and pick up waves as they come. Uh, well, that's what the marketing team on your website say. <laughs> founders of one of the founders of the global sustainability movement, it says there. So, well, you that's know. probably a little bit more accurate than the way you initially rendered it, which was <laughs> a founder or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> delighted to be here, looking forward to whatever it is we have coming next. Yeah. It's going to be one of those conversations, isn't it? I'm going to have to watch my words. Um, okay, can I ask you to start then? I mean, we've said, you know, that we're going through the front door now. We're not coming through the tradesman's entrance anymore. Clearly, sustainability and a, a better awareness of its role in the business world is now something that we don't take as a surprise. Just give us a sense, John, of, of, of where you think we are as a world around this topic. You know, perhaps a kind of high high level view. Well, in a way, it was no accident that I used the sort of wave metaphor just a moment ago, because since I came into the field, and Richard kindly said I was older than Methuselah, all of which is true, and I've been working in this since the early 70s, um, there have been a series of very large uh, energetic um, societal pressure waves, which businesses responded to in different ways at different stages. So right at the beginning in the 70s, it was absolute horror, and, and literally you really struggled to get through the front gate or the front door of um, uh, major companies. I would say in the 90s was the moment when uh, even boardrooms woke up to the fact that this was becoming significant and to some degree strategic, and therefore they wanted some people from this wider world inside to sort of get a sense of what the hell was uh, going on. I think what's really striking this time around, and for, for us it's the fifth of those waves, uh, which started building in 1960 
Um, uh, what's different this time is that in all previous waves, as we went into a down wave, for whatever reason, a recession or 9-11, what whatever it happened to be, is people um, started to recoil. The business interest and appetite for all this stuff, exactly as Richard said, fell back. And this time, if anything, I think it's intensifying. Uh, and, and exactly for the reasons that you um, uh, mentioned, Amanda, which is... Um, I think people are increasingly realizing that this is uh, a nested set of systemic uh, challenges and opportunities. But that cartoon that's been doing the rounds recently of um, you know, COVID-19 coming in and behind that, the climate change uh, challenge behind that, the biodiversity, sort of the sixth uh, great extinction uh, challenge. I'm sure we could strap some other ways in there as well. But um, I, I think this is an immensely exciting time. And just finally, I think, January of last year, we, with the Viva Investors, we did a conference uh, called the Tomorrow's Capitalism Forum. We'll repeat that in June, hopefully, of this year. And the strap line was step up or get out of the way. Now, that just doesn't just apply to uh, investors and policymakers and CEOs and so on. It applies, uh, I think, to all of us. So is there a sense that that, that traditional capitalist model has shifted in response to the pressures of, of the climate, or is it that it's adapting because it knows that it has to, and the climate is just one of those pressures that it will need to respond to? I'm, I'm sure you would get different views, and I probably would agree with most elements of most of them, but I think this was happening uh, before COVID-19, so we can't simply blame that. I think what's happened has been uh, strongly, forcefully catalytic, and I'm not sure that it's simply because of climate or, or, or resource issues either. I think that there is a, there's a rhythm in wealth creation paradigms. And I think since Milton Friedman back in you know, the, the, the 60s and 70s, we've had a, a, a 50 year cycle of people going towards very narrowly defined uh, forms of market success and bottom lines and all the rest of it. And I think people are just realizing that if you, if you unleash that sort of uh, mindset through markets, you end up in a place you really didn't uh, intend to get to. So I think for all sorts of different reasons, people are re realizing, if you think about the Financial Times front cover a couple of years back, you know, time for capitalism, time for a reset, you know, people have been sensing this in their bones in a way, but by God, climate and, 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 and COVID and so on are giving it a sort of shot in the arm or a, a boost, let's say. Uh, the way I, I would put it, John, is that they've, um, COVID is, is, is different from climate change because it's rather quick and instant. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like a flashlight bulb on a camera. You know, bam, yeah. everything is illuminated into very high contrast. Uh, and climate change, we know much more about than, than COVID, but it's a sort of gradual raising of the light, you know, we sort of dimly glimmering things. And I think COVID in that sense, has been a um, has accelerated the the the, the sort of the, the appreciation of um, organisations that were as you say were already doing things before the pandemic, and it just really gave them a poke to to speed up. And I, 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 I hope that Noel Quinn, who's the CEO of HSBC, will not. <laughs> 
you know, kick me for this, but because I, I cannot quite remember the quote that I that I saw in the last couple of days, in which she essentially said that 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 for, for them, uh, COVID was a reminder that Mother Nature is is implacable and is going to do this, and that they need to respond. And I think that as well, the rhythm. You, I think you're quite right about the rhythm of. Uh, economic market models getting refreshed. And I think that was also brought into really stark relief that I mean, one thing that I noticed right at the beginning was that the UK was incapable of providing its own um, protective um, gear, you know, yeah. even you know, down to just having things to put over your you know, your nose and your mouth, which, which let's face it, reasonably trivial things um, to manufacture. And apparently we yeah. couldn't even do that. And then we got caught out by, you know, supply chains that couldn't supply us because um, they just didn't have the capacity to ramp up so quickly. And if you look at that rather closely, what you'll find is that that is that is Friedman free market economy stuff, because just in time manufacture presumes that you, you know, your your sort of your uh economy society is in some form of dynamic equilibrium so you can react fast enough but if you have a real tragedy like the pandemic you can't and so you make yourself less resilient to natural um natural challenges and i think that for me is one of the big things that's come out a big big fat reminder that nature is really important and ec economics does not sit um, somehow outside of, 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 of nature. And I think, Amanda, if I might, I, just to respond in the instant to what Richard has just said, I think what's different between COVID uh, and uh, the pandemic and climate is that climate has mobilized younger people in a way that we haven't seen for a very long time. And if I were a CEO of a major company, I'd be scrambling to try and find out what younger people are going to be thinking uh, and doing and what their choices and priorities will be uh, over time. Because I think we're seeing the Greta effect, which is people are suddenly waking up, younger people, this is their future, and it's looking pretty scrambled in a bunch of different ways. And I think the shock waves from that are going to be uh, profound. So, and, and COVID-19, to some degree, is amplifying that. But I, I think that intergenerational dynamic can only become more important. Do you mind if I follow that up, Amanda? I know we're, we're sort of, we're going off. We, 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 you go, who, Richard. You go. Those, those who are listening to this recording should know that John, myself, Amanda, and the producer, Jim, we were having a, a lot of sort of, like, not scratching our heads, but worrying that we would do exactly what we're doing now, <laughs> which is getting interested in what, what each of us is saying and going off on one. So I'm going to go off on one. Um, one, I, th I think what, what John has just said is, 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 uh, one of the, maybe the most important thing that has happened over the last couple of years, and, um, you know, Greta Thunberg is the, the poster woman now of, 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 of that effect. And um, I, I think we will owe her a huge amount um, in, in, in the future. There were others. I mean, you know, people, young people were really thinking, but you need somebody to grab this thing by the horns uh, which which she has, and in fact, I can tell you that some of the CEOs that I've been talking to, the um, they're, they're completely aware of young people and and their attitudes because those are their sons and daughters, and they have told me directly that I can't go home 
and you know face my my kids if I'm not trying to do the, the the right thing. So there's a lot of pressure building up on a lot of people because kids are asking, "What are you doing about my future, mum, dad?" Um, so I think that's really important. It's also to do with employment. So and there's a very interesting studies by Edelman um, about about companies that were having a problem getting recruiting the best people and it was completely related to well what what standards do you hold as a company social responsibility environmental responsibility all the things that john has been telling um, that community um, before friedman in the 80s actually that they need to think about and i think all of that is is, is a huge part of this um, this this change that I think both of us are seeing. The thing that I think, if, if, if I may, the thing that I think will have to happen, and will have to happen pretty damn fast, is that um, free market economics means that um, employees' relationship to the leadership of their companies is guns for hire. It's, it's, it's not a deeper relationship. And when you're trying to decarbonize your company, you need a deeper relationship. So I genuinely think that the success, the companies that will successfully emerge uh, during this revolution in, in the way we, 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 you know, we work and live on this planet um, will be the ones that, that recognize that and that the relationship between employees and, and, and employers will change and become a much richer and more interesting thing. And there are other stakeholders as well with whom relationships will have to change. So, you know, your customers, your locality, there's all sorts of really interesting things that I think the next nine years will will, will, will really see um, emerge. That relationship's changed already, though, hasn't it, as a result of COVID? I mean, we just fast forward, you know, in spades, the, the, the movement that was already about you know, people moving away from central workplaces, working at home, being more flexible, taking more account of the work-life balance things and the ability to do that through technology. I mean, it does feel a little bit like we've been here before because I remember the kind of homeworking, teleworking views. <laughs> you know, I teleworked from my shed back in the early 1990s when nobody did that sort of stuff. But, but, I, but, but what worries me is that people have been forced back into their homes because they, many, many people, because they can't work in the office. And already that relationship with the employer has shifted significantly. There's a level of intrusion, actually, into people's home lives because of home-based working, isn't there? So while there are huge positives in this, I'm a little bit concerned about with the impact this is having on, on, on people's working lives. And I'm really concerned about the impact this is having on young people because, you know, young people having to work totally remotely in, in a way where they cannot connect with their organizations and and how you keep that glue that organizational glue and how you keep those levels of motivation for young people who are probably being pushed quite hard and whose mental well-being is quite under threat I think at the moment because of the change in working patterns I mean how do you keep that level of engagement if you're not in the office regularly seeing your your leaders doing the right things and feeling engaged and connected to your organization? Well, Amanda, I think um, engagement is one thing, but what, what, what sort of upsets me about what I see going on at the moment, uh, and I should say not in our own organization where we have a, a wonderful CEO and she's been ahead of most of these curves for a while, but younger people 
um, are not getting the experience that, that people of uh, our ages uh, got at the appropriate time. And I think, you know, education is one thing, and even that's being interrupted by, for, for many young people. But that sort of practical experience of working with people with um, more of a background in the field that they're trying to get into, um, being taken along to meet clients and so on, whatever it happens to be, or if it's in a bigger company, just working with people side by side and learning in that rather practical way. That's not happening in anything like the same uh, way now. And I think one of the things that I think needs to happen is we need to see an absolute rampant acceleration in the way in which younger people in all organizations are brought into the decision-making domain. Not simply dumped in and saying, you're the future, darlings, off you go. Because they they, they, they can't, do that. And you know, Greta herself has said that um, repeatedly, don't look to me. I, mean, I should be at school. I mean, don't look to me for the solutions. You tell me what the solutions to these challenges probably are and how you're going to make those uh, happen. But we've been working with a, a Spanish infrastructure and, uh, and, and renewable energy company, Acciona, for the last year, and bringing 27 of their younger people from around the world much faster up the uh, not only the learning curve, but the, but the decision-making uh, tree to the point we, we started off to doing a what was to have been a, a five-year sustainability uh, strategy for the company and ended up being a 10-year uh, core strategy for the entire business. And you know, that sort of learning experience is, I think, essential. And I think uh, unless we do that, unless we do it in a timely and effective way, uh, despite all of these pledges and commitments and so on from uh, companies, you know, as, as, as some of the younger people are saying, it's nonsense. You, you don't give me promises about 2040, 2050. Tell me what you're going to do now. Uh, and I think younger people need to be very directly involved in those processes. I, I, I agree with that. By the way, Amanda, I'd, I was not referring to a future which was, was about about working remotely. Uh, I, I'm, I'm talking about, well, I mean, in fact, I strongly believe that um, Homo sapiens are, are a social animal. Yeah. And, yeah. and this isn't good for us, this constant no, 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 remote no, no. working. I, I don't want anybody to go away thinking that I'm sort of saying everybody should be in a little crenellated COVID-free castle, you know, talking through through Zoom and, and, and mm. all the other uh, pieces of software. I don't believe that at all. Um, and there, 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 I would point to some other reasons why. So I think... The feeling of purpose and engagement and decision-making and in shaping the future is what is required. Um, and you don't learn that through a formal meeting. You learn that through all the informal cues and signals that the tribe that you call your, your the company that you work for is. You know, we, we, we respond and react to seeing, feeling what other people are doing, not through edicts that come from above. And so the, what, the reference I was making to is a sort of th th that businesses need some kind of corporeal instinct um, for change. And that, 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 you know, what I see from many companies is a sort of, well, if I just say that this is what we're going to do, then some, I'm, I'm at the top of the company, obviously. Obviously, I'm at the top of the company. I say this thing, I write an edict, and it will just happen. And I think I won't mention specific businesses. But over the last couple of decades, I can point to CEOs with, you know, wonderful intentions, but whose company is actually stuck somewhere else, making a declaration, 
does not make change. Um, I think going to John's comment about young people and so on and, and, and taking leadership, we are, um, well, actually we've made a decision ourselves in, in the Grantham Institute and in the creation of, of, of our new um, hub, our new, our new center for, for climate change innovation, that those of us, myself included, who are, you've got lots of links, lots of networks, we've got a, a you know, back catalog of stuff that's important. We are not going to be the leaders. We're going to be facilitators. We're going to give leadership to the, the generation just behind us who are the first in line for, for, for the future. Our role, the role of people like John and myself, um, is to give them what we know, to give them advice, to, to, to engage them with networks that we've got, but not, um, yeah, not to be leaders, not to, not to lead this, because we're superannuated. You know, we're, 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 the, the future is not ours. Our future is well behind us. We're not putting you out of grass just yet, Richard. But I think you're you're you're, you're right that um, and we do need to give that to young people. But I think if you talk to anyone who's a, a, either a current student or, as you would do all of the time, Richard, in your work or a recent graduate, they are really fearful. They're not just fearful for the state of the planet and that fear we saw embodied in the climate strikes, the school climate strikes, and young people in the streets. You know, and we spent a lot of time talking to them through the podcast. They're they're fearful for their future because they see their future disappearing in front of their eyes. You know, they haven't been able to graduate they cannot engage with with on-campus stuff if they're still students they can't get jobs you know they they applying you know I talk to, to young people they've applied for hundreds of jobs and they don't even get the courtesy of a reply very often um, they can't even get a job in a pub because the pubs are shut so so a lot of their normal ways of of, of learning work skills and associating with a workplace have been taken away from them Add to that the burden we're placing on them that they have to, in part, solve the climate crisis, and that is a burden. I mean, Grisha's right; they do. People do expect her to come up with solutions, as, even as she says she still should be at school. They are quite burdened as young people, and they are probably not as empowered because they can't be in the workplace, as you've said, John. So it's quite a it's quite a responsibility that we're laying on their shoulders. I think. One quick response, if I might, um, uh, uh, both to what you've just said, Amanda, and to what uh, Richard said before that. Um, I don't think the time for leadership in the older generations is over. I think the nature of leadership okay. is changing in the sense that uh, in the old days, you, you know, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, you were hierarchical organizations on the Eisenhower model. That was one thing. Now you have very complex globalized organizations and leadership is different. I think what people have been progressively realizing is now you've got to manage, uh, understand and manage and shape um, ecosystems of different actors. And some of those are directly in your domain in the sense they may be economic or whatever, but others will be regulatory or they'll be sort of social troublemakers or whatever you call it. And you cannot any longer um, ignore those uh, people. So just very quickly, personal reflection now I'm 71, um, I'm a baby boomer, for better or worse. Uh, both my parents uh, died uh, the year before last, both in the late 90s. And I only say that because for a very long time, I used to say, I want to be dead by the time I'm 70. And now I'm, I'm just the other side of that. And I'm thinking, actually, I think the next 10 to 15 years are going to be the most dramatically interesting uh, and hopefully effective uh, uh, period in my entire uh, working life. Because I do think we have 
networks, as Richard said, we, we, we've got um, all sorts of resources that we can bring to bear, but I don't think we can simply abdicate responsibility. And I'm sure that isn't what Richard was suggesting, but step back and lead it to the little darlings to uh, sort out. I think we've got to be really muck in alongside and work out new forms of uh, intergenerational uh, leadership. And I think what you were uh, suggesting there, Richard, around uh, moving from being a leader to a facilitator and an enabler, I think that's very much part, but I don't think that um, we will suddenly see the backside of anyone over 70 being um, you know, a, a proper, properly understood uh, leader in all of this. We've all well, got that up. You're far too young to be president anyway, so you've got to keep at it for a bit. <laughs> I suppose what I was really saying, is, and I think it just may be worth saying this, is that um, you know, we, le leadership comes in many different forms and, 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 and we need leadership all over the place. And I recognize that I'm being very crude in my language and deliberately so, I, that, that I, I want people to not think of this as a procession where those who are older, oldest are at the front of the procession. Yeah, no, those who are, who are two months old are at the back of the procession. Um, that there is far too much to do mm. for us to have these very sharp, pointy, hierarchical um, ways of organizing ourselves we're going to have to be quite broad and 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 um what's the word integrated in our approaches um and and in fact you know what, what i suppose i would i would say to young people and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to address the covid thing which i do think is going to well i mean i'm seeing it because you know we've got we've got our first year of of COVID undergraduates, and it's been it's been an, an experience for all of us, for the students and us academics. And there's going to be another generation. There's going to be another year coming in. So there are at least two years, and there, there are all the other ones who've missed education and the socialization and so on. But let's just for the moment put that to to one side and just talk about climate change, ecological disruption, and so on. All all these things are, you know. Um, massively disturbing and, and and worrying and if you're not worried you're not awake you know you 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 should be worried i think john and i suffer from um i think a, a malady called eternal optimism um and uh, we sort of proudly wear our illness um, and i would turn around to people and say actually there's not much option other than to try and look at what the positive things are that will come out of this. So one, number one, I would say is, um, this is a vast, a great opportunity to change things for the better. And you won't be able to change things for the better if you're just sitting in a corner feeling miserable. You're going to have to get stuck in. And I think what you'll see with the startups, they're one form, of course, of doing this. They're not the only form, but they're one form of doing it is actually, despite how difficult it is to start a business up, I think, you know, you will recognize that every single one of them is incredibly positive. And the reason they're positive is they've taken control. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. doing something that they believe in. They've taken control. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that's an admirable way of approaching life notwithstanding climate change and all the rest of it, is take control, be in charge of the time you've got on the planet, do good things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think 
John, we've been neglecting our duty if we didn't talk a little bit about green swans and, and what that analogy encompasses, really, because it is really about taking control, but it's about taking control not just as a, an individual innovator of the kinds of entrepreneurs that we've talked to over this series of podcasts, but also in a more widespread sense, isn't it? So allowing people to bring together new ways of working or new new, new ways of thinking, I suppose, in more traditional business environments. What, what epitomizes a, a green swan? I mean, we've talked a lot about black swans and white swans and grey swans, and but what's special about a green swan? Well, ju- just for those who don't remember or haven't read Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, uh, The Black Swan, or other of his books like Antifragility, uh, just a, a couple of um, bullet points around that. I mean, what he was talking about were um, trends or disruptions in our world where, in very short order, typically, things go completely peculiar and 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 um, things happen completely by surprise. Uh, they take us places that we really didn't expect to go. So their impact is off the scale uh, enormous. It can be positive, but very often, at least in the early stages, it's profoundly negative. And then very often after the result, we look back at what's just happened to us. We try and understand uh, the dynamics and very often fail to do that um, and and, and therefore set ourselves up for uh, longer term failure again. And the idea that occurred to me was if you you, uh, crudely categorize most black swans as things that take us exponentially where we don't want to go, at least in the early phases, what would um, the trajectories, the trends, the dynamics look like where we were able to move exponentially in directions that we do want to go? And simple question. And I thought I wouldn't find very much in that uh, area, but actually found examples all over the place. So um, you asked for uh, examples. I think one of them, I, th- I think policy is going to be enormously important. Many people in the Milton Friedman uh, space uh, and, and, and mindset. And to, to Richard's earlier point, I, I didn't predate uh, Milton Friedman. I mean, I, his work was a good 25 years before I came out with the triple bottom line, for example. But um, people uh, expected uh, things to just plod along at an incremental rate. And we're period, now moving into a period of, of which we call the sort of exponential decade, where everything is going exponential. COVID's going exponential in a bad way, but uh, many of the solutions that we need to some of these wicked problems are also going to go exponential too. So our our training needs to, and education needs to uh, shift and and evolve our mindsets uh, similarly, but markets most crucially have to change too, and policy is incredibly important in all of that. So I look at what's happening in the EU around the, a green deal, for example, 1.82 trillion euros or whatever. Um, and it's a mess in some ways. And yet this, the level of ambition is extraordinary. And I, for me, that's a potential green swan, but I'm not counting on it. I think, you know, if, if these things are going to go truly exponentially positive over decades, even generations, then they've got to be shaped actively by all sorts of other players. Another one would be um, the loose plateau in China, which was occupied, it's where the Han people uh, originally came from, and they wrecked it. I mean, the, 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 it's a vast area of China, completely degraded, turned into a desert by human activity. And over the last few decades, immense effort and, and resourcing has gone into reclaiming and greening that uh, landscape. So if you fly over it now, you can actually see that recovery 
happening. So, but it, green swans to me are market or political or societal trajectories. We're seeing evidence that people are trying to say, I'm a green swan in the sense, I'm doing good stuff and it might be exponential. That's not what we mean. These are, these are bigger shifts into which companies or individuals or whatever governments can play and have sort of almost green swan characteristics. But we're slightly nervous about picking, picking people picking this up and sticking it on their chest like a medal. We're not looking for individual green swans. We're looking for a, a movement, I guess, that characterises those sorts of behaviours, whether it's economic, social or environmental, aren't we really? Well, I, I, to just take a third example, a very obvious one, you know, Elon Musk, for example, people have been saying he's a green swan. And to me, he's a catalyst along that direction. For me, the, the, the green swan trajectory is the shift from the internal combustion engine to electric uh, forms of uh, transportation, which at the moment in the current paradigm will be largely private motor cars, but ideally wouldn't be. There'd be much more uh, sort of collective responses. And maybe we'll have hybrids where uh, you, you, you own a, um, a, a, an electric vehicle and for periods when you're not using it, the thing is out autonomously on its own, uh, earning money for you. So your, your, your car becomes a sort of an asset. I owe that insight to somebody called Roger uh, Atkins. Uh, but when I look at the, the, the electric vehicle space, that shift that Elon Musk has actually helped catalyze is getting us to the point now where we look out to 2023 and we see the prospect of over 500 EV models around the world. Now, that's... That's, that is such a disruption. It, it changes price points, but critically, it changes the, the way in which people think about access, mobility, transportation, and, and so on. So it's a cultural revolution in the making. Huge, huge visions for the future. Um, I wonder if you think there's something that you could share with listeners that might encourage people to feel that they can engage with this? Because we've talked a lot about senior leadership in, in organisations and very few of us get, are, are fortunate enough to get, become CEOs of large corporates. So what about those of us who are perhaps smaller actors working either in innovative spaces or in education or, 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 or just perhaps doing a, in quotes, normal job in a normal organisation? What role is there for, for that kind of engagement for those, for, for those individuals? Well, I do think that engagement is the critical term. And in a way, what I think COVID has done that's in a sense most challenging in the longer term is it's it's forced people back into their own comfort spaces. Yeah, it's not always comfortable, but they're where they know how to be uh, with their families or, or, or whatever it happens to be. And yet, this is a point in our collective history where the future will go to the people who get out more, who go and... Uh, meet some of the people who are doing the disruptive work on technology or business models or market dynamics or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and so one of the things that we're saying to CEOs and people in, in business and so on alike, as soon as the brakes come off, as soon as you can get out there, uh, don't just spend all the time traveling off to Ibiza or wherever it happens to be. Um, go and see some people who are inventing or reinventing the future. And then in the same way that we used to haul back Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth or whatever, or, you know, Mohammed Yunus and social entrepreneurs or whatever into the corporate world and you know, different forms of stakeholder engagement, get those people out of their comfort zones, out of their boardrooms, out of their C-suites and take them into these new emergent realities. There's nothing like, I mean, if you have the future come in and see you, 
It's a very different dynamic from going out there and actually experiencing it. And that's where some of the uh, religious phrase, the epiphanies happen, where people suddenly see a very different reality. I, I, I really strongly agree with that, Amanda. I, th- I won't go on about, about things that have happened in the past. I'll say what people have said to me recently. Um, it's almost a universal response from the people we were talking about, you know, the, the executive levels of these big companies, is um, they want to be able to see the future. They want to be able to see around the corner because when you're doing it, when you're going through exponential changes, it means it's very difficult to see the future because it's happening so rapidly and so on. So they want to be able to see the future. So they've got some instinctive feeling that this is going on and that they need to be able to, to perceive what the future is. And then the next thing they say is we want to be involved. We believe that if we're going to be a leading company, continue to be a leading company, we have to be involved. And the being involved is going out there and having those epiphanies. Um, sensing where the green swan is and becoming part of whatever whatever movement it is that will will make that happen. In doing that, um, maybe one of the things I think that will be interesting is that exponential changes will have will have failures as well. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and it's all part of, of 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 the natural kind of cycle. How we handle that will be will be um, one of the big questions of um, of this decade. And just very quick response to that exponential line of thought, Richard. Um, if anyone listening to this hasn't come across the work of Rethink X, uh, very highly recommended, based both in uh, uh, UK and in Silicon Valley, and they've done a series of reports on firstly transportation. Uh, and mobility. Secondly, on uh, the dairying and cattle industry in the United States. The, the other um, studies have all been international. And the third one on energy and particularly electricity. And they're moving on later on to finance. And the common thread in all of them is that we are uh, experiencing a, the early stages of a massive disruption of our economy in which, uh, you know, our natural instinct to think in straight lines gets completely overtaken and to some degree betrayed by the fact that a whole raft of different um, vicious uh, cycles start to switch in and virtuous ones um, as well. And we talk not just about green swans, we talk about lame duck uh, industries. So fossil fuels are very much headed in that um, direction and at a rate which I don't think even their most thoughtful people properly uh, understand. This is going to go like gangbusters. And we also talk about ugly ducklings, things that in today's world that look really seriously weird, as Tesla would have done 15 uh, years ago, but which have the capacity to completely reimagine uh, the future on our behalf. Um, so we've got to look at all these different directions at the same uh, point. But I actually, I, I, I just underscore the fact that this is the most tremendously exciting period in our collective history to be alive and to be working in this space. Um, I, I, I cannot think of any period since perhaps the late 80s where I felt, felt as energized uh, and as enthused about the potential to uh, move this uh, wagon of ours much, much faster than it's been moving uh, to date. We're in one of those periods where, you know, in five years, what took 20 years previously will happen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and that's the nature of, of where we are, isn't it? The speed, once you gather speed, that speed just keeps on gathering, doesn't it? You know, I'm sure there's a law of physics in there, Richard, somewhere, which I don't know, but but it, that's an enormously optimistic note to end on. And I guess it brings us full circle too, doesn't it? Because what you've really been talking about, John, is about disruption, but but of a positive kind that leads to positive change. And, and young people on the whole, are quite good at that. They're quite good at coping with challenges and disruption and, and adapting. And, and they've come in for a lot of stick over the years and, the, the, you know, being called snowflakes and, and, and accused of all sorts of things. But actually, they are enormously resilient. And, and those of us who are in a position to support them, if we support them well, they will take on some of these disruptor challenges and, and not, not just be, be, be led by, by older and wiser minds, but perhaps stand side by side and we work together into the future with them, don't we? We don't. We, it's not. A, it's not a linear progression. It, we're. I have a vision of us all walking down a street together, linked, arm linked, as we move towards the future. So perhaps that's the way forward. Richard, are there any closing thoughts from you? Because we seem to segue gently into to some of the, the, the thinking behind the new centre that you're that yeah. you're launching. Um, but we should perhaps pull things to a close. But it feels like a place to perhaps touch on that. Yeah, I think it, w- it would be good. I think that. Um I love ugly ducklings. <laughs> that is my particular predisposition um, because I don't know which one is going to turn into a beautiful green swan. Um, and when we started off this kind of process of, of, of trying to accelerate these companies back in 2012, you know, I, I made all sorts of declarations of what our intentions were. Those startups have, have proved to be um, about... 10 to 20 times more successful uh, than, than, than I made in the declarations. And I thought the declaration was a piece of nonsense to win a grant. And I'm going to tell the story, although I know it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's just part of a green swan, but I'm going to tell the story of, of Upside Energy, which, which is one of our startups. Upside um, were created during a hackathon that, that we ran. They didn't win the hackathon. Um, that was to do with load shifting for the renewable grid, okay? They didn't win that, but we thought they should have done. We thought they were the best. So we took them into our accelerator program as not a consolation prize, but because we believed in them. They were our ugly duckling. Um, And now they, this uh, actually last year now, but in the last couple of months, um, they were bought out by Octopus Energy. Now, Octopus Energy is is doing what Tesla uh, has been doing. They are a front runner in, actually, can we completely reinvent the electricity grid? And one of our little ugly ducklings is an important component for them in trying to make that real. So I think for me, the center that we want to make is going to produce ugly ducklings, some of whom will turn into green swans and, um, you know, I'll be, for every green swan that, that appears, I will be immensely grateful that we decided to support the ugly duckling. And I can bet there'll be no lame ducks anywhere because it's not the kind of tone. But it just thank you, Richard, and, and a huge thanks to you, John, for sharing your thoughts and as always inspiring us. And, and I think encouraging those of us who sometimes feel we've been plugging away in this space for a very long time. And it's wonderful to think that we might not just be coming through the front door, people might be coming to us too. So thank you for that. Well, well speaking about front doors and cat flaps, Amanda and Richard, neither of you with the greatest respect as a teenager, and although <laughs> we'll 
Absolutely not. Younger people. I cannot wait to continue uh, the conversations with you uh, both. Um, it's a new year after all. It is yeah, a new let's year. Make that a res- let's make that a resolution for 2021. Yeah. Let's, let's. There'll be lots more of these. You try and stop us. Um, a formal thanks to John Elkington, our guest. And I have to say that you can buy Green Swans direct from his website, volons.com. Um, it's a great read. And to my co-host, Richard, um, as well as to our producer, Jim Haywood, you can catch other episodes in this podcast series from the Grantham Institute website or via theplanetpod.com. And you can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Thank you for listening. Thank you, John. Goodbye from John. Goodbye. And from Richard. Uh, Goodbye. And from me. Goodbye. Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Our thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the team at Imperial College London.